Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Angela Davis. You are listening to a special North Star Journey live conversation done in partnership with Sahan Journal that will address the current state of immigration in Minnesota. We're recording this live at El Colegio High School in Minneapolis with a panel of legal experts, advocates, and a crowd of community members here with us. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Hi. I also have a co-moderator for this discussion. Hiba Ansari is here. Hiba is the immigration reporter at Sahan Journal. Hi, Hiba. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so tell us, uh, to get us started, why uh, does Sahan um, want to talk about this? Why does Sahan Journal choose this topic for our discussion? Yeah. Thanks, Angela. So as you know, Sahan Journal is dedicated to covering immigrants and communities of color in Minnesota. And with immigration at the southern border at record highs, we had been hearing from a lot of Latino families and also other immigrant families in general who are concerned about changes to immigration, especially especially with the 2024 election right around the corner. Mm -hmm. So yes, we have a lot to cover in this conversation. So let me introduce our panel of experts. We have with us this evening, first, we have Emilia Gonzalez, the executive director for Unidas Minnesota, a local advocacy group for Latinos across the state of Minnesota. Thank you for being here, Emilia. Thank you so much for having me. And next to her, we have John Bruning, a supervising litigation attorney at the Advocates for Human Rights. Now, that is a non-governmental organization that works to represent immigrant victims of human rights abuses in the U.S. and around the world. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. Next to John, we have the legal director of the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota, Jenny Stoll-Powell. The Law Center provides legal representation to low-income clients. Hi, Jenny. Hi, thanks for having me. And there on the end, we have Nazra Ishmael. Uh, Nazra is the U.S. Enterprise Executive Director of Alight, which is a refugee resettlement agency. Nice to meet you, Nazra. Welcome to Minnesota. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Hi, she just moved here recently. Um, so Hiba is also an expert on this topic because she covers immigration full-time as part of her reporting job at Sahan Journal. So for people like me, those of you who are like me, who might be coming to the conversation feeling a little bit overwhelmed because it, it's a struggle to keep up with all the news headlines, let's start by sort of setting the stage. So John, I'm going to ask you to help us with this. What is going on at the southern border of the United States right now? There's a lot of noise about the situation. And so can you sort of give us a, a sense of what we're seeing right now? Sure. So right now at the southern border, we're seeing, I think, unprecedented numbers of people that are um, they're fleeing their home countries and trying to seek safety here in the United States. Um, this has been exacerbated by climate change, by conflicts um, throughout the world, really. We're seeing people from every corner of the globe. Um, and it's also being... Um, I think we're also kind of seeing like the cooling effects of COVID-19 and Title 42 and other policies that prevented people from coming to the United States before. And so now we're seeing um, just really unprecedented numbers there um, and a lot of people coming to Minnesota as well and numbers that we really just haven't seen before. A lot of people that are trying to find safety, there is no safety at the border. People are mm -hmm. vulnerable and victimized by many different people that are trying to exploit them um, and they're trying to get into the United States but there isn't a good way to get in um, and government officials, nonprofits, everybody else are really overwhelmed by these numbers and unable to help things move along. Are the majority of uh, the, the people, the, the immigrants at the southern border today, presenting themselves to Border Patrol um, and, and seeking asylum? 
I don't have a specific number, but I think it's nearly everybody. Um, certainly there's some people that are coming for other reasons, economic reasons, but almost everybody is coming and trying to request asylum here in the United States. And if so, if they're doing that, what exactly does that, that mean in terms of the, the circumstances that they're leaving behind? Yeah, I mean, I think a a fairly famous poem, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. Um, And that's really the situation that we're seeing um, people that are coming from West Africa, um, Anglophone Cameroonians um, who are facing significant repression, people from Southeast Asia who are facing, in some cases, genocide, as well as other parts of Central Eastern Africa, um, Central America and South America, we're seeing just gang violence on an, or on a scale that we just have a, have never seen before. Um, people in Eastern Europe facing instability and war. It's really just there's crisis all around the globe, and it's all coming to the southern border. Um, you know, in terms of what people are fleeing. And we know too that that some of these immigrants are making their way to Minnesota, even though we're far from the southern border. What or where are the majority of people coming to Minnesota coming from? Do you know? Um, my best guess is um, is Ecuador. Um, we're seeing um, Ecuador pretty significant numbers coming to Ecuador. A lot of it in terms of who comes to Minnesota or who goes anywhere else in the country um, is very regionalized. So we're not getting just a microcosm of who's at the border. We're seeing particular groups that have some presence here already. So Ecuador has been very prominent. We're seeing again people from Cameroon, from Russia, Ukraine, um, Eastern, other parts of Eastern Europe, um, various countries throughout Central and South America. Um, again, so it's really it is really all over. But I would say Ecuadorians have been like the most prominent group in terms of. Uh, who is needing legal legal assistance or other social services. Nasra, can you fill us in on some of the reasons? So when folks are coming uh, to Minnesota from the southern border, or, or really from, from anywhere, um, what are the reasons? Is it is it political? Is mm-hmm. it safety? Is it economic reasons? How would you describe it? Yeah, no, I would agree. I think the reasons are many. Um, I work with Alight. We're a global and local organization. And so we tend to hear, you know, some of the prevailing situations, which is often uh, almost always conflict, some Mm -hmm. kind of conflict, could be worsened by political instability and or um, uh, climate. And sometimes it's all three. And so I think the reasons are so many which is why it's not just a border issue here for us. It's actually around the world. Some of the data we keep seeing, and it's unfortunately heading in the wrong direction, that is increasing, is we are seeing upwards of 130 million people who are displaced. And so I can imagine our border is one that we are feeling close to and we care about, but there's so many nations around the world who are seeing people flee. And I just want to underscore, um, these are vulnerable communities, uh, much like my family when we came to America when I was very young, who were seeking safety, who were seeking shelter, who were seeking some of the basic things that we all are so lucky to have. And so it is a lot of pressure that we share with the world. Uh, Eba, I see you nodding. I'm sure much of, of what we've heard already, none of this surprises you. No, but it's still really important information, um, especially to set the context in terms of what that means at a local level. And um, so I really want to kind of take the conversation from the southern border to Minnesota. So, John, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your work as an attorney in this field um, advocating for non-citizens in immigration court? Like, what are you seeing, especially in terms of caseload? 
Yeah, I think the short answer is everybody is really overwhelmed right now. Um, we've seen, you know, I think Minnesota is in many ways microcosmic of what's happening nationally in terms of numbers, um, immigration court nationally and here in Minnesota. The case backlogs have doubled um, over the last year and a half or two years. Um, the number of immigration attorneys and um, capacity of local legal service providers has not doubled over that period of time. It's stayed about the same. So we've seen the representation rate in immigration court actually cut in half. Um, over this period of time. Um, we're also um, really overwhelmed with just calls for assistance. We went from um, under 1,000 to maybe um, a little bit over 1,000 calls for assistance in previous years, and now we're on track to receive over 12,000 um, requests for assistance really in a very short period of time. And I think, as other panelists here can attest, I think that's a pretty universal experience right now. That means that you know, people can't get help. Um, people are calling many different organizations, and that's you know just kind of adding to that burden. It means also that there's the wait time to get an asylum hearing um, to be able to get permanent safety is being pushed out even further and even further. I think it's just yeah, everyone is kind of feeling feeling the numbers, and we want to try to rise to that as an occasion, but that's also causing us to have to rethink how we provide these services and what services we can provide. Jenny, feel free to chime in. Is the Immigrant Law Center experiencing similar repercussions? We are. We're also seeing that increase in demand for services. And um, because a lot of people are seeking asylum, we're referring them to the Advocates for Human Rights. And so people are going from agency to agency seeking help. I think at the same time, you know, we have other case types, and some of those are also putting um, strains on capacity. Um, for example, we represent victims of crime, and um, because of the limit on the number of visas available each year and more people seeking these visas, the wait times are getting in longer and longer, so our cases stay open longer. So. Mm. You know, when there's such a demand, but yet when a case now takes eight to ten years and that time is just going to keep increasing, um, it really does compound that capacity question and um, makes it even more difficult to um, provide those services. So, Amelia, how does then all of that play out, you know, specifically for the Latino community here in Minnesota? So, I mean, as we heard, we have uh, uh, an increased amount of neighbors that are seeking asylum from places like Venezuela and uh, uh, Ecuador. And we are seeing that the social services that are available and in, in that can be accessed regardless of immigration status are experiencing high volumes and wait lists for basic necessities like housing, food, and shelter. Um, and we are also, this is something that is, is it was predictable and it also was we could have had a solution. This is the result of inaction, a very slow rollout uh, to slow down climate change and inaction and immigration reform for the last, since 1989. Uh, We don't have also a solution for DACA. 
And we still have a border bill that was moved in Congress that was extremist and was catering to anti-immigrant Congress people and still was not extremist enough and was rejected by the Republican Party. So all these different foreign and economic policy, climate change and stability, the rising of authoritarian governments in the world are forcing people to migrate to places that have water, have resources, and that uh, are perceived in, in the public perspective that they are safe and welcoming. Let's remind also ourselves that this is, so in, in, in the municipal sense, this is a crisis created by anti-immigrant governors that are trying to punish cities that are doing the right thing to support these new arrivals and refugees by recruiting and sending people to places that they might not have relationships, that might not know where they are in the map, but for sure there is a, a finance operation to move people from the safe heavens that they arrived to trying to find other relatives or a community and bringing them into places like Minnesota, New York, Chicago. Um, so it was preventable, and we have a problem, but still we have a shared responsibility to not polarize human beings as a crisis that we cannot mitigate. We have a responsibility because we still live in a state where we have enough we have enough, and we can share. So I think one of my favorite parts of my job is, you know, learning about all of this really, like, systemic, contextual information, but then finding the personal stories in it. So I wanted to start with Amelia, but I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to chime in. Um, Amelia, do you have, you know, do you know somebody whose case maybe has been stalled or who's fallen through the cracks in some other way through this the system that we're talking about? I know a lot of people that are new arrivals and who are right now in wait lists trying to find legal counsel as they have been released from a detention facility at the border. We know women and children from all ages that are joining some of the social services uh, to be able to find uh, the, the pertinent support when they have their court hearings. Uh, personally, my, my father is undocumented, and he's been waiting for an immigration remedy since 2001. Uh, so this is... This 23, are, 23 years, since 2001? 23 years, yes. And he has been in Minnesota since 1992. So there is older immigrants who have already provided their strength and their labor to build the stronger communities and who are now deemed as disposable. Human beings that once we exploited, they are relinquished to the corners of society where there is no social services, no retirement, no health care. And we are also uh, in this moment where we have newer immigrants who are who, who are being polarized in this rhetoric of divide and conquer. Who should, who deserves an immigration remedy? The ones that have been here before, or the ones that just arrived? And what unidos the organization that is accountable to mixed status families? We say. It's not a matter of deserving. It's a matter of humane immigration policy that meets people in the moment and the crisis that has not been mitigated for the last 30 years. Wow. So 
to the rest of you, John, Jenny, and Nasra, I'll let you all kind of chime in. Like, what are some of the stories of people you know who are stuck in this system? And, you know, what do those obstacles look like for them? Yeah, I mean, I think um, without getting into individual client cases, I mean, the advocates have hundreds of clients um, that are stuck in backlogs. We have people that um, came here on visas and applied for asylum quote unquote the right way, um, who applied in 2014, 2015, and have yet to get an interview at the asylum office to have their story heard. And they will get asylum eventually one day when they finally get an interview. Um, and um, kind of the same thing in immigration court cases that have been pending for t- over 10 years now. Um, that means that families are separated. Once they get asylum, they can petition to bring some family members here, but they can't do that while their case is still pending. Um, and it means years of uncertainty in their cases. It means years of having to renew their work permits on a two-year basis. Um, thankfully, that's been extended to five years now, but for a long time it was every two years, and then it takes... 18 months for it to be approved every time. Um, it's just, it's no way for people to live. And so it's been very difficult for them. Um, many people have medical issues that have come up. People are stressed out and anxious, and it's really difficult for them to keep going. Kids age out of their parents' cases and, and then lose protections. Um, I think the, the hardest thing too is, you know, they have to just kind of keep at it. Our volunteer attorneys and our staff attorneys have to stay in touch with them for this long period of time. Um, or when we change attorneys, the new attorney has to step in and then they have to build that trust up again with them to tell their story and do this over and over and over again. So it's really just an unsustainable practice. And now we're kind of getting to the point where to even get an asylum interview, um, again, for people that came with visas, we have to sue the government in every single case to get an interview. And it's $400 to do that. Applying for asylum is free. You have to pay um, $400 just in filing fees to file that that complaint in federal court. And that's going to start eating up federal court resources as well and U.S. attorney's resources to get to that point. And it's tens of thousands of people in this situation, hundreds of thousands of people in this situation um, all around the country that are stuck in these backlogs. Yeah. And maybe... I can add to that and say, um, you know, when we look back, I know as a light, um, we serve a particular community who um, come from primarily when we talk about the U.S. So we've served the Ukrainian community who have come from Ukraine at the height of that conflict. And then more recently, um, the Afghani community as well. They come through different pathways, um, uh, refugee resettlement, sponsorship. But then um, also there's... Uh, an important point, at least for those of you who might be following this, but, you know, this is an interplay between policy, responsiveness in terms of services at local, uh, national, uh, federal level, and then it's also um, the quality of responsiveness and what the system of ours, that's been very active, that's been very, um, I mean, America is not new to receiving refugees. This has been part and parcel of who we are. The drastic change, I think, in sometimes... um, that come about in policies that cause some of these backlogs that cause just an aggravation around the systems is, you know, we used to welcome around 100, 120,000 uh, refugees a year into the U.S. But um, once some of our policies did change in 2016, 2017, um, 
all of a sudden it became an infrastructure problem. It became, we were set up to receive a certain kind of level and absorb and support, and there's many benefits to why people come. And after they seek shelter and their basic services are supported, they become incredible agents of change, incredible entrepreneurial change to uh, growing states, growing uh, the U.S. economy, being absolutely part and parcel of our strength and our diversity. So I think... One of the things is some of what we're feeling is because of drastic policy changes where us as a light who are not neutral humanitarian organizations, we can sense the pressure on all. And then on top of that, post-pandemic, or we can even say that, then there's competing and absolutely credible issues at home. So there's a balance in the priorities And so I think our systems are taking so much burden. And at the same time, the humanity of people who are just looking for shelter, just looking for safety, just looking to start life because something disrupted their own life. Um, They can wait years to come through. They can wait years for basic benefits. And then some of the other stories we see, at least with the communities that I've worked with here in Minnesota, is there are There are programs like the private sponsorship program um, here uh, that's been implemented together with other resettlement organizations, other private sponsorship organizations, where everyday Minnesotans say, yes, we're going to support these communities. Yes, you may not have the state's support or the city's support, or it might be lagging, but I will take and help you uh, take your kids to school. I will help you get your ID. I will make sure that while you learn English, I can babysit for your children. So there's this welcoming capacity despite the issues, that is probably some of the most beautiful stories that we hear that says, keep hope alive. It is difficult. We're not alone. And we'll get better. Thank you for that. I just wanted to add on a really basic level some of the challenges um, People coming in through the border who are in removal and have Mm -hmm. ICE check-ins, they're given a whole stack of papers Some of the information is very confusing. Um, And on January 2nd, I showed up at my office and I found a young man and woman in the lobby um, speaking Spanish. And I said, you know, les puedo ayudar? Can I help you? Um, And they were looking for their place to check in with ICE, um, thinking Mm. it was at our office, which happens because we're on a pro bono list that helps with court cases. Um, and I asked to look at their papers, and even for me as an attorney, some of the papers are very confusing because they're giving information about different programs and even programs that don't apply to their particular situation. And I looked at the young man and I said, you know what? You don't have to worry for another month. Your appointment's actually on February 2nd mm-hmm. or February 1st because the days, he thought January 2nd was the day of his check-in when it was really February 1st. And Can you imagine, you know, trying to figure out and um, make your way through this very complicated system with very little assistance and representation available? Absolutely. Just having people explain what these papers say and make sure people know where to go, what to bring is important as well. And I'm sure you probably breathed a sigh of relief after hearing that. (laughs) Or what was that conversation like with him? Um, I think, yes, they were relieved that... um, They knew where to go Mm -hmm. in the future for their check-in dates, knowing it wasn't at our office building. And then they had another month to do it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think maybe if I can add one more thing about... um, 
I mean, bureaucracy is something, uh, I'll tell you maybe just a personal story. If you're on the other side of bureaucracy, but it's not your own, and there's a language barrier, which tends to be, you know, one of the main reasons that people do grapple with even getting through a particular process. For some of us, I mean, I grew up in Somalia. I was very young when I came. Um, my family was sponsored by an American family in San Francisco. I'm so glad we never filled out some of these paperwork because we just couldn't even do it right. And for some of the forms that you can find in any, anyone who's ever worked for government, you know, one mistake and, you know, you're, you're looking to come back and make an appointment. I, I want to point out those of you who probably love to go to the, get your license um, uh, renewed. You know what that's like. Right around your birthday, you're not looking forward to filling out those forms. So these are just things that we're used to, but imagine if you're um, afraid for your life and you don't know where you, you just arrived. You just arrived, and, and you're in Minnesota, you know. And and the cold is probably not your favorite, but you know, it's just imagine of uh, some of these things. We have to humanize them. I mean, at Alight, we 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 co-create uh, with our communities, and we try and come up with the solutions. But it's how we do it that really matters, and it's making sure that everyday Americans step up and and do our part, but. Um, our systems are really a lot uh, under pressure, and I have to say there's also just growing mis- and disinformation. I don't mind a great debate. I don't mind some friendly, critical feedback, but I think um, the stories are really important because mm-hmm. they, they show us a shared vision and a shared humanity, and that's with a light where we try to walk along with our customers. So, Amelia, can you tell us more about, you know, what the most current and pressing needs are for the immigrant communities that you work with um, and represent? So Unidos Minnesota is accountable to new Americans. We are expanding into a multiracial operation, uh, but we continue to be heavily uh, represented by uh, undocumented Latinos, but also uh, refugees and new Americans from other communities. And as we are building, we build our agenda uh, during the last legislative session, and the number one priority was driver's licenses and healthcare. Uh, so successfully, we deliver that uh, with all of you and all the support we got. Uh, so folks will be able to you now. Folks are lining up and getting their driver's license. So that's great. And uh, folks will be able to enroll into, if you qualify, uh, due to economic, uh, you know, you need to meet economic criteria to enroll on Minnesota uh, in Minnesota Care starting January first, uh, January fifth, January first of 2025. Um, so. We also know that uh, according to the report published during the fall from the Minnesota Business Partnership, uh, there is a worker shortage of 168,000 workers that the state needs to be able to have these jobs uh, filled and operational and in full function uh, because we are seeing a lot of the baby booming generation retire, retiring in like very big uh, percentages in the state of Minnesota. And we think that this is a a challenge that represents an incredible opportunity to provide technical support, assistance, and training for these new Americans who have or don't have immigration status to fulfill some of those jobs. So this is why we are building this year 
what we call the Rise Up Center, which is an opportunity center where we're going to train uh, folks into apprenticeship and pre-apprenticeship programs for the union careers that are well-paid, have benefits, and are really important in order to transition and decarbonize our cities and our municipalities. So we are seeing immigrants as part of the solution of climate change, and we're building that infrastructure to be like not just have opinions, but actually roll up our sleeves mm. and operationalize complicated policy into really humane and common sense solutions where we don't have to pit people, pit, pit people against each other. We're actually working together to find solutions to complex problems. Um, other things that we're seeing is uh, folks want uh, access to work authorization. Uh, we are uh, in the rolling or rolling out this. Uh, we piloted the first defer action for workers that have an investigation open with an agency, for example, the, the Department of Labor and Industry or the Attorney General's. Uh, if any immigrant worker, either through a temporary visa or undocumented worker, can prove and open an investigation with one of these agencies that they are for sure a victim of unfair labor practices, we can, like the, these agencies can uh, pr uh, publish a letter in which we can then work with our partners, the, the attorneys, and they can get deferred action in a work permit while that investigation is ongoing. So folks are able to get jobs and perhaps go back to school or getting training, open bank accounts, just have a different type of opportunity. Uh, so we see uh, a conversation about worker, the green economy, as a very high demand of our base, of our members, because folks want to work and they want to have good jobs and they want to have good benefits. And I think that is what every Minnesotan wants today and has always wanted and there is a shortage, and we can be part of the solution for that. Absolutely. I have a question. A word that has come up quite a bit in the conversation so far is undocumented. And I would like um, one of you to define that to me. What is it exactly is an undocumented worker or undocumented person? Um, so an undocumented person is a human being that, ha that does not have immigrant immigration authorization to stay in the U.S., uh, they could have crossed the border or never had authorization, or they could have their authorization expire through different scenarios, different contexts. And with that expiration, then they just started living without an authorization to live or work in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to add, too, that undocumented doesn't it doesn't really have a set definition, right? Like it's kind of used as a fill-in to describe like a really complicated set of legal situations. But I think undocumented and some of the more pejorative terms that are used for migrants that have come here, it really doesn't capture the fact that many of them have documents, right? When they come meet with us, they have documents. They have documents from Homeland Security and ICE that recognizes who they are that presents their their you know that confirms their identity it sometimes gives them permission to stay in the United States for a certain period of time allows them to apply for asylum go through an immigration court process receive work authorization and some other things like that they don't have a a, a set permanent status here but most people that are considered undocumented 
the government knows who they are, right? They have they have some form of papers. They just don't have a green card or some other you know a visa to stay here. And so I think it's uh, I don't know, yeah I think it's really complicated to kind of use that terminology because it, it doesn't actually convey what's what's really happening. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. And I think on the flip side of that, you also have then the refugee resettlement process, which is a very different pathway. Um, and Nasra Alight, I know, works to help um, refugees resettle in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit more? I know you mentioned it before, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about what the resettlement process looks like right now. Yeah, I think like uh, all the other um processes uh, that have been affected by different policies, it's also um, experiencing some efficiency issues. And there's a lot of backlog, and there's a lot of our systems that are trying to catch up. I know some of the data I was reading today, um, the numbers recently of those who are refugees and who come through that pathway are last few years maybe around 1,500 looking to maybe increase that number and see um, that it could creep into 2,000, a little bit over 2,000. And so those numbers are going up, but there is a process in in play, and um, it's very much uh, under a lot of bureaucracy, but the right kind of bureaucracy, so people can come safely and legally. The conditions of displacement don't always allow themselves for people to come through. So I just want to honor the word that you said, which is humans are experiencing displacements and sometimes there's a particular pathway that's legal and suitable it just takes time but there are pathways uh, others it's um life and fear and conditions that uh, really determine um paper and documentation and processes not catching up with the reality of for instance a young mom fleeing with her young daughter which is not necessarily something I would want to be in, to be quite honest. And I can also understand where they might find themselves in a different kind of asylum. So there are different pathways with different pros and cons. But I know for, for us as a light, we've been working with those who come through humanitarian parole and come through private sponsorship. Um, I was just reading another data today about Poland uh, in response to the Ukrainian crisis is now reporting that they've taken in somewhere between one and a half to 1.7 million Ukrainians. So the responses, I think, and the systems and the capacity of those vary. And they're dynamic, depending on how well a country is doing. Emilia, you also said, you know, um, once people get integrated, once you get through the emergency part, which is some of our refugee um, uh, clients, customers, that's what we call them, once they get their basic services, like every American, it's bills, rent, children, uh, finances, those kinds of issues then come into it. And what you see is, at least some of the data I've read, 15% of refugees who come into the U.S., and this data is a bit um, old, but in the last 10 years, 15% of them have either become or are considered entrepreneurs. And the data indicates that they can add somewhere between 3.5 to $4 billion into our economy. So there's just... Um, there's all kinds of angles about why we have these um, resettlement refugee processes and why some of the systems are having a hard time. But different cities have different experiences as well. Um, and, and we've been really proud to welcome uh, our new Americans from Afghanistan as well as Ukraine. And I think it's important to name that both finding refuge or, or petitioning for refugee status mm-hmm. Or in migrating without authorization or out of and like outside of the inspection systems are both expressions of forced migration. That's right. Mm-hmm. They just like they legalize of it and the paperwork and all the requirements are different, but they're both expressions of forced migration. 
That's right. For refugees, they're outside of the country, they're waiting for a long time, they're doing all the process abroad, like you would if you're seeking asylum in the country, but outside the country and you're coming in already with having gone through the security process. Um, But I reviewed applications today of people who had lived outside their home country for close to 20 years in refugee camps. The process takes so long. Can you imagine? I mean, before coming to the United States and being resettled here in Minnesota and going through that process with the local resettlement agency, getting your green card, and hopefully then later becoming U.S. citizens. I think to me, um, that kind of reality uh, is one of the ones where I know with Alight, we are starting to care about, one, documenting that journey and saying um, it's not just the arrival, it's how many other borders, how many other uh, travels, and how much life happens of various different qualities in that journey. It is actually somewhere between 15 to 20 uh, years that an individual can spend being displaced that means someone could be born in a refugee camp. That means someone could actually have several lives, um, could have children, could raise in conditions that we would um, that we would not want for ourselves. And so, I think the uh, I hope that there's a calling for a complete review of uh, these kinds of processes, not just for the U.S., but I think for many countries who are um, dealing with. Uh, systems that may not be ready. And there are hopeful stories and there are strategic priorities and decisions each one can make, but um, the point is uh, these are human journeys as well. I want to take a moment to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're listening to a special North Star Journey live discussion in partnership with Sahan Journal about immigration in Minnesota. And we are recording this at El Colegio High School in Minneapolis. Our panelists, I'd like to introduce them again to you. Uh, Amelia Gonzalez, who's the executive director of UNITAS Minnesota. John Bruding, a supervising litigation attorney at the Advocates for Human Rights. Jenny Stolp-Howell, the legal director at the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota. And Nazra Ismail, the U.S. Enterprise Executive Director of Alight. Um, Amelia, immigration relief, only the first step to building a life in the United States. But your organization really works to continue the work of supporting um, Latino immigrants as they as they build a life here. And for example, just last year, um, the Minnesota uh, State Legislature passed a law that allows um, the undocumented Minnesotans to get the opportunity to get a driver's license. You, you mentioned that. We've talked about that. What's the status um, of um, other bills that you've worked on that support Minnesota's Latino community? Well, like I mentioned, we are in implementation design phase so that uh, undocumented or people out of a status in Minnesota that qualify due to economic criteria can apply for Minnesota care starting on January 1st of 2025. Uh, there is also, we have other bills uh, that we're going to drop at this legislative session. One is creating a wage replacement program for those who are employed already in W-2s and meet the criteria for unemployment insurance who have been paying for years and years and years and who cannot uh, ask for unemployment insurance because this, these resources are 
sort of protected through federal law, uh, but like an additional wage replacement program that can provide folks with the access to the benefits that they have been paying for years, especially with uh, downs of uh, some uh, industries, like in the construction industry, where a lot of folks rely on the unemployment insurance payments during the winter so they could get training and build capacity and actually go up the prevailing waging uh, ladder. Uh, we are also, as I mentioned, building a training center so that folks can continue to in increase the skills in the green energy and construction industry. Uh, we are reviewing some of the language for the testing because uh, translation sometimes is not... Uh, we hear that a lot of people are having challenges with the language test, like with, with the actual test in Spanish. And when we read it, it, it is uh, it is not just technical. It doesn't. It should be accessible regardless of your education credential, mm -hmm. and it is not as accessible as we think. So we're reviewing and maybe thinking of moving some amendments or some adjustments this legislative session so that it's more accessible. Being a pro-immigrant state is makes sense. It it shows that uh, Minnesotans are. Um, are caring and we have shared values, but it is also good for the economy as we try to reach uh, an equitable demographic change by 2050. We have to make sure that this change also comes with access to building generational wealth that eventually transform to having more income taxes going into the state and building better infrastructure for the people that are retiring and for the ones who are being born in the state. So we are looking at a long game, um, and um, we will continue to hear from our members and the new arrivals to hear what are the challenges and see if there is a systemic change approach that we can deploy. And Jenny and, and John, I want to ask you about this. Um, a, a new bill that DFL lawmakers have proposed that would make Minnesota a sanctuary state, um, which would prohibit state and local agencies from cooperating with federal immigration authorities to deport people. Um, thoughts on that, or what are you hearing from, from families about that? You want to take that one, John? <laughs> yeah, so, um, so the Advocates for Human Rights is, um, is a supporter of the North Star Act um, and some of this legislation. Um, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of talk about it yet. I think it's kind of, um, there hasn't been a lot of news and it hasn't, um, hasn't taken some of the next steps forward. But I think it'll ultimately be a really good thing to allow law enforcement in Minnesota to focus on um, keeping Minnesotans safe, not doing ICE's job for them. Um, our local law enforcement and public safety um, resources should be focused on keeping us all safe, not, um, not carrying out immigration enforcement, not separating families, not taking parents from their kids, um, not doing any of these things that makes Minnesotans worse off. Um, it'll instead of leave, us, leave us better. Hippa? So I think something that always really is an interesting conversation um, when it comes to immigration is that oftentimes the obstacles and the challenges that we talked about today, they span decades. You know, in the case of Amelia's father, who's been stuck in the system for over 20 years, um, you know, what is it that we've learned in previous years or previous presidential administrations? And at the end of the day, does it really matter who's president? No. It absolutely matters. <laughs> it absolutely matters who is president. 
And I will tell you, like, our spiel as an organization that builds civic engagement and we build independent political pro-immigrant power. Mm. Politicians, presidents, uh, mayors, city councils, representatives, senators, they're not saviors. They are our slate that we pick as if we're playing a football game. We pick out our slate and then game time is the organizing, the base building, the activism that we do so that this lady that we pick can deliver in partnership and with the values that we're bringing to the game. Yeah. So we, I'm not expecting, at least personally, I cannot speak for our organization because we have some decisions to make in terms of the federal races, uh, which I don't think will be hard, but, you know, <laughs> I am, we're process-oriented, so I'm respecting the process. Uh, but... I, I, I am not expecting a president to save us. None of the things that have been delivered by people and for people have been uh, done through one savior that decides that that's the thing that they're going to move in Congress. We have to organize. We have to take responsibility. This is the community that we are building together. And if we want to build an anti-immigrant community where fascism is the law of the land and we are not able to have exp- like the religious expression that is true to our spirit and the mm-hmm. communities, the plural communities that are multiracial democracy deserve, then we know what's the choice. But if we are serious about our beloved and cherished global democracy project, then we know we need to work hard for it. You got, you got us fired up. And that was a great question. I, I know some of us uh, felt like, what's our um, organization's policy again about this area? But I think, um, I mean, I think the diversity of responses to a question like that is really important. And I think what I take from what you've said is um, democracy is uh, the thing that we're all getting behind. And I know as a young child coming from Somalia, I remember the hunger that I had for government once I arrived in America. After eight years, once I grew up, I went to college and I worked for for U.S. government. And then I said, "Well, hold on now." Um, <laughs> but 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 I think that kind of stability and that democratic voice. Um, what I absolutely agree with, and and my uh, colleague is um, the expression of our voices is what makes this country so great and what has always maintained its strength around the world. Um, we have nearly 40, 50 countries that are looking at election, a significant impact around the world that, you know, um, are all happening this year. And so while I'm not able to comment on the president or what the elections would, would, um, would, would uh, realize in all of us, I think what's important is policy does touch everyone. Uh, policies are important uh, for every community, every member, every um a human being, and of course, uh, this is not to say that different communities are not vulnerable to different types of policies, but at the intersection of policy and principles is whatever you do, let's just, our goal is to have humane, um, just, and dignified approaches, and a whole of society and a whole of government approach to caring about every individual. I know that's Pollyannish, but I actually really believe in this. I, I've been in the U.S. for 32 years. I love it. And I have a hard time, have a hard, complicated relationship with this country and its policies. But I choose to be here, and I choose to vote, and I choose to sing its praises when it deserves it, and I choose to speak up when I think, hmm, this is not what I remember, but I also know we can be better. 
Here's a question that is not political. What motivates each of you to do the work that you are doing? What gets you up out of the bed in the morning, Nasra? The belief that I have control, I have a voice, and there's a part of America that I can co-create with individuals who have come to its shore, just like my family in 1992, and that that's not small. That's not small. So if I can play my part, and if I can help shape the greatest welcoming movement in the U.S., oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. (laughs) I started my introduction to immigration law on the Texas-Mexican border over 35 years ago, and um, thinking about this conversation brought me back to those days when it was asylum seekers coming from Central America, you know, and we're seeing some of that still happening. So... um, For me, it's just been a real privilege and honor to work with my clients, to help support them through the immigration system. As my spouse says, I love paperwork. I love to fill out (laughs) forms, and I'm good at it. Oh, my. um, Oh. We're glad you get up every morning. I feels for good and support my clients. And that's what makes me get out of bed and keep doing this work. Mm -hmm. John, what motivates you to, to, to work in immigration? Yeah, I I I made the decision to go into immigration. I was graduating law school during the um, the 2016 um, presidential election, and decided, well, I guess we need more immigration attorneys now. So that's what I'll (laughs) what I'll do. Um, I've been doing some immigration work for a long time before that, so it wasn't uh, out of nowhere. But um, I became an attorney under the under the previous administration and spent every waking hour fighting deportations and detention. And you know, I think despite how pessimistic we all were and how bad everything was, like we actually saw a lot of victories and a lot of the victories that we saw were where people came together, you know, working with immigrant law center, working with some people that are here in the audience today. Um, you know, we, we won stuff under the last administration and no matter how bad things got, I know the four of us and many other people here are going to keep fighting and figure out ways to, to make things better. And Amelia, what is your motivation to work in an area that is so complicated, but in, I guess, in some ways, very simple? So I came to organizing because I wanted to go to college as an undocumented student. And I stayed organizing because I do believe in that multiracial democracy North Star that has a core element of immigration justice at the center. Mm-hmm. I was undocumented for over 20 years, and I've been in Minnesota longer than I have ever been in any other place in the world. Um, this affects my family. This affects my, my father. And I honestly made a promise. I, this is the first time I say this. Uh, if my daughter is listening... Back in 2016, when I was pregnant with my youngest child, I made a promise to my daughter. And the promise was that family and children separation, she was going to be the last generation to see family and children separation. And that all of our mom, all the moms and the parents, we were going to band together and we we're going to win and deliver that organizing win that we deserve. So I believe that none of us want to see those images again. None of us want to leave those moments again. And I can tell you that we can deliver that. We can make that inevitable. And it takes work. So I, I want all of us, all of us to, to come together, to work hard, 
because that should never be part of the news or the shows or 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 the photographs that are deployed in in the, in the news uh, of uh, uh, on, of our time. All right. Well, thank you. Um, we're going to wrap things up right now. It's been such an enlightening and informative conversation. Thank you to all of our panelists tonight. We've been talking with Emilio Gonzalez, the Executive Director for Unidos Minnesota, John Bruning, a Supervising Litigation Attorney for the Advocates for Human Rights, Jenny Stoll-Powell, the Legal Director at the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota, and Nazra Ishmael, the U.S. Enterprise Executive Director of Allied and our co-moderator this evening, Hiba Ansari, the immigration reporter at Sahan Journal. And a big thank you to all of the audience members here tonight at El Colegio High School in Minneapolis. Until next time, be well, everybody. 